Chapter twenty five B of the Everyday Life of Abraham Lincoln. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Everyday Life of Abraham Lincoln by Francis Fisher Brown. Chapter twenty five B Returning Cheerfulness, Congratulations to the Country, Improved State of Feeling at the North, State Elections of eighteen sixty three, The Administration Sustained, Dedication of the National Cemetery at Gettysburg. Meeting with Old John Burns, Edward Everett's Impressions of Lincoln. Mr. Isaac R. Pennypacker, in his Life of General Meade, speaks of Halleck and other prominent officials in Washington in these terms. Possessing much of the skill of the lawyer and disputant, Halleck was without military ability. The Secretary of War, like many other men who exercise vast power, was not great enough to refrain from the use of his authority in matters where his knowledge and experience did not qualify him to form the soundest views. Acting with these military authorities were men like Wade and Chandler, whose patriotism was of the exuberant kind, whose judgment in military affairs was without value, but whose personal energy impelled them to have a controlling hand, if possible, in the conduct of the war. Lincoln's dissatisfaction with General Meade, after the Battle of Gettysburg was due, as we now see, to his elation over the splendid victory for the Union, his intense desire for further and overwhelming successes, and his failure, a quite natural one, to realize that what might seem desirable and feasible, viewed from Washington, might look very different to the practical and experienced men, actually on the ground and familiar as he could not be with all the factors in the situation. Footnote. A curious revelation of the estimate of General Halleck held by at least one member of the Cabinet, and of the relations between Halleck and the President, is found in Wells's diary in the record of a rather free conversation with the President during the anxious period about the time of the Battle of Gettysburg. Says Mr. Wells, I stated that I had observed the inertness, if not the incapacity, of the General-in-Chief, and had hoped that he, the President, who had better and more correct views, would issue peremptory orders. The President immediately softened his tone, and said, Halleck knows better than I what to do. He is a military man, and has had a military education. I brought him here to give me military advice. His views and mine are widely different. It is better that I, who am not a military man, should defer to him, rather than he to me." This, continues Mr. Wells, is the President's error. His own convictions and conclusions are infinitely superior to Halleck's. Even in military operations more sensible and more correct always, Halleck has no activity, never exhibits sagacity or foresight, and in another place in the same diary we are given this singular picture by a cabinet minister of the man who was at that moment the general-in-chief of the Union armies, and the military adviser of the President. Halleck sits and smokes, and swears and scratches his arm, but exhibits little military capacity or intelligence, is obfuscated, muddy, uncertain, stupid as to what is doing or to be done. End footnote. He thought, wrote General Halleck in an explanatory letter sent to Meade two weeks after his dispatch of censure, that Lee's defeat was so certain that he felt no little impatience at his unexpected escape. Among military authorities, such a retreat as that of Lee after Gettysburg 
is hardly regarded as an escape. If it were, then great must be the fault of Lee as a general in allowing the defeated armies of Burnside and Hooker to escape after the battles of Fredericksburg and Chancellorsville, where their repulse was much worse than was Lee's at Gettysburg. That Lincoln's first feelings of disappointment and dissatisfaction with General Meade were greatly modified with fuller knowledge of the actual situation after the Battle of Gettysburg is shown by a remark made by him to Senator Cameron referring to Meade. Why should we censure a man who has done so much for his country because he did not do a little more? And if any debt of recognition or of gratitude yet remained due from him, it was more than paid a few months later in the unsurpassed tribute at Gettysburg to the brave men living and dead who gained the victory on that hallowed field. The improved condition of public affairs and the increasing cheerfulness of the President after the victories at Gettysburg and Vicksburg are exhibited in a letter written by him a few weeks later to friends at Springfield, Illinois, who had urgently invited him to attend a mass meeting of unconditional Union men at his old home. In this letter he took occasion to declare his sentiments on various questions paramount at the time. Among these was the subject of a compromise with the South, against which he argued with great force and feeling. Again he defended the Emancipation Proclamation, a measure to which many Union men were still unreconciled. He referred also to the arming of the Negroes as a just and wise expedient, finally concluding with these expressive and felicitous words. The signs look better. The Father of Waters again goes unvexed to the sea, thanks to the great Northwest for it, nor yet wholly to them. Three hundred miles up they met New England, Empire, Keystone, and Jersey, hewing their way right and left. The sunny South, too, in more colors than one, also lent a helping hand. On the spot their part of the history was jotted down in black and white. The job was a great national one and let none be slighted who bore an honorable part in it. And while those who have cleared the great river may well be proud, even that is not all. It is hard to say that anything has been more bravely and well done than at Antietam, Murfreesboro, Gettysburg, and on many fields of less note. Nor must Uncle Sam's web feet be forgotten. At all the watery margins they have been present, not only on the deep sea, the broad bay, and the rapid river, but also up the narrow, muddy bayou, and wherever the ground was a little damp they have been and made their tracks. Thanks to all. For the great republic, for the principle it lives by and keeps alive, for man's vast future, thanks to all. Peace does not appear so distant as it did. I hope it will come soon and come to stay, and so come as to be worth the keeping in all future time. It will then have been proved that among free men there can be no successful appeal from the ballot to the bullet, and that they who take such appeal are sure to lose their case and pay the cost. And there will come some black men who can remember that with silent tongue and clinched teeth and steady eye and well-poised bayonet they have helped mankind on to this great consummation. While I fear there will be some white ones unable to forget that with malignant heart and deceitful speech they have striven to hinder it, still let us not be over-sanguine of a speedy final triumph. Let us be quite sober. Let us diligently apply the means 
never doubting that a just God, in his own good time, will give us the rightful result. In a public proclamation issued October 3rd, the President gives more formal expression to his satisfaction and gratitude, and calls upon the loyal people of the Union to unite in a day of thanksgiving for the improved prospects of the country. The year that is drawing toward its close has been filled with the blessings of fruitful fields and healthful skies. To these bounties, which are so constantly enjoyed that we are prone to forget the source from which they come, others have been added which are of so extraordinary a nature that they cannot fail to penetrate and soften even the heart which is habitually insensible to the ever-watchful providence of Almighty God. In the midst of a civil war of unequalled magnitude and severity, which has sometimes seemed to invite and provoke the aggressions of foreign states, peace has been preserved with all nations. Order has been maintained, the laws have been respected and obeyed, and harmony has prevailed everywhere, except in the theatre of military conflict. While that theatre has been greatly contracted by the advancing armies and navies of the Union. The needful diversion of wealth and strength from the fields of peaceful industry to the national defence has not arrested the plough, the shuttle, or the ship. The axe has enlarged the borders of our settlements, and the mines as well of iron and coal as of the precious metals have yielded even more abundantly than heretofore. Population has steadily increased, notwithstanding the waste that has been made in the camp, the siege, and the battlefield and the country, rejoicing in the consciousness of augmented strength and vigour, is permitted to expect a continuance of years with large increase of freedom. No human counsel hath devised, nor hath any mortal hand worked out these great things. They are the gracious gifts of the Most High God, who, while dealing with us in anger for our sins, hath nevertheless remembered mercy. It has seemed to me fit and proper that they should be solemnly, reverently, and gratefully acknowledged, as with one heart and voice by the whole American people. I do, therefore, invite my fellow-citizens, in every part of the United States, and also those who are at sea, and those who are sojourning in foreign lands, to set apart and observe the last Thursday of November next as a day of thanksgiving and prayer to our beneficent Father who dwelleth in the heavens. And I recommend to them that, while offering up the ascriptions justly due to him for such singular deliverances and blessings, they do also with humble penitence for our national perverseness and disobedience, commend to his tender care all those who have become widows, orphans, mourners, or sufferers in the lamentable civil strife in which we are unavoidably engaged and fervently implore the interposition of the Almighty Hand to heal the wounds of the nation, and to restore it, as soon as may be consistent with the divine purposes, to the full enjoyment of peace, harmony, tranquillity, and union. The brightening prospects of the Union cause quickly produced a better state of feeling at the North. In the fall elections of 1863, every state except New Jersey gave solid majorities on the Republican side, thus strengthening the administration and giving the President welcome assurances of popular approval. 
He had awaited with special anxiety the returns from Ohio, where the contest was fraught with peculiar significance. The Democrats had chosen for their candidate the notorious peace-at-any-price Vallandigham, against whom the Republicans had placed John Braw of Cleveland. On the night of the election, about ten o'clock, a message clicked on the wires in the telegraph office of the latter city, saying, Where is John Braw? A. Lincoln. Braw was at hand, and directly the electric voice inquired, Braw, about what is your majority now? Braw replied, Over thirty thousand. Lincoln requested Braw to remain at the office during the night. A little past midnight the question came again from Lincoln, Braw, what is your majority by this time? Braw replied, Over fifty thousand and the question was thus repeated and answered several times with rapidly increasing majorities till five o'clock in the morning when the question came again bra what is your majority now the latter was able to respond over one hundred thousand as soon as the words could be flashed back over the wire there came glory to god in the highest ohio has saved the nation a lincoln the day after the election in Ohio, October 14, 1863, Lincoln said to Secretary Wells that he had felt more anxiety in regard to the results than he had in 1860 when he was chosen president. He could not have believed four years ago, he said, that one genuine American would or could be induced to vote for such a man as Vallandigham. Yet he had been made the candidate of a large party, and received a vote that is a discredit to the country. Mr. Wells adds, the President showed a good deal of emotion as he dwelt on this subject. After the Battle of Gettysburg, a portion of the ground on which the engagement was fought was purchased by the State of Pennsylvania for a burial place for the Union soldiers who were slain in that bloody encounter. The tract included seventeen and a half acres adjoining the town cemetery. It was planned to consecrate the ground with imposing ceremonies, in which the President, accompanied by his cabinet, and a large body of the military, was invited to assist. The day appointed was the 19th of November, and the chief orator selected was Massachusetts' eloquent son, Honorable Edward Everett. Following him it was expected that the President would add some testimonials in honor of the dead. Lincoln and Everett were representatives of two contrasting phases of American civilization, the one an outgrowth of the rough pioneer life of the West, the other the product of the highest culture of the East. They had met for the first time on this memorable day. Everett's oration was a finished literary production, smooth, euphonious, and elegant. It was delivered with the silvery tones and the graceful gestures of a trained and consummate speaker. When he had finished, and the applause that greeted him had died away, the multitude called vociferously for an address from Lincoln. With an unconscious air, the President came forward at the call, put his spectacles on his nose, and read, in a quiet voice, which gradually warmed with feeling, while his careworn face became radiant with the light of genuine emotion, the following brief address. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. 
we are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting-place of those who here gave their lives that that nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this, but in a larger sense we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who struggled here, have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note, nor long remember, what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. It is for us, the living, rather, to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus far so nobly carried on. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us, that from these honoured dead we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion. That we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. The simple and sublime words of this short address shook the hearts of the listeners, and before the first sentence was ended they were under the spell of a mighty magician. They stood hushed, awed, and melted, as the speaker enforced the solemn lesson of the hour, and brought home to them, in plain unvarnished terms, the duty which remained for them to do, to finish the work which the dead around them had given their lives to carry on. It was one of the briefest of the many speeches with which Lincoln had swayed the impulses and opinions of crowds of his fellow-men. But it is the one which will be remembered above all others as hallowed by the truest and loftiest inspiration. As the final sentence ended, amid the tears and sobs and cheers of the excited throng, the President turned to Mr. Everett, and grasping his hand exclaimed with sincerity, "'I congratulate you on your success!' Mr. Everett responded in the fervour of his emotion, "'Ah, Mr. President, how gladly would I exchange all my hundred pages to have been the author of your twenty lines!' Of all Lincoln's public utterances, this is unquestionably the most remarkable. The oration, brief and unpretending as it is, will remain a classic of the English language. The Westminster Review, one of the foremost of the great English quarterlies, said of it, it has but one equal, in that pronounced upon those who fell in the first year of the Peloponnesian War, and in one respect it is superior to that great speech. It is not only more natural, fuller of feeling, more touching and pathetic, but we know with absolute certainty that it was really delivered. Nature here takes precedence of art, even though it be the art of Thucydides. An illustration of the difference between oratory and inspiration is Mr. John Bigelow's happy characterization of the Gettysburg Address. It was, he adds, one of the most momentous incidents in the history of the Civil War. It may be doubted whether anything had then, or has since, been said of that national strife conceived upon a higher and wiser spiritual plane. It is perhaps on the whole the most enduring bit of eloquence that has ever been uttered on this continent and yet one finds in it none of the tricks of the forum or the stage, nor any trace of the learning of the scholar, nor the need of it. Major Harry T. Lee, who was himself a participant in the Battle of Gettysburg, 
and occupied a seat on the platform at the dedication, says that the people listened with marked attention through the two hours of Everett's noble and scholarly oration, but that when Lincoln came forward, and in a voice burdened with emotion uttered his simple and touching eulogy on the brave men living and dead who struggled here, there was scarcely a dry eye in the whole vast audience. Mr. John Russell Young, afterwards U.S. Minister to China, was present at the Gettysburg dedication, and says, I sat behind Mr. Lincoln while Mr. Everett delivered his oration. I remember the great orator had a way of raising and dropping his handkerchief as he spoke. He spoke for two hours, and was very impressive, with his white hair and venerable figure. He was a great orator, but it was like a bit of Greek sculpture, beautiful but cold as ice. It was perfect art, but without feeling. The art and beauty of it captured your imagination and judgment. Mr. Everett went over the campaign with resonant, clear, splendid rhetoric. There was not a word or a sentence or a thought that could be corrected. You felt that every gesture had been carefully studied out beforehand. It was like a great actor playing a great part. Mr. Lincoln rose, walked to the edge of the platform, took out his glasses and put them on. He was awkward. He bowed to the assemblage in his homely manner, and took out of his coat-pocket a page of fool's cap. In front of Mr. Lincoln was a photographer with his camera, endeavoring to take a picture of the scene. We all supposed that Mr. Lincoln would make rather a long speech, a half-hour at least. He took the single sheet of foolscap, held it almost to his nose, and in his high tenor voice, without the least attempt at effect, delivered that most extraordinary address which belongs to the classics of literature. The photographer was bustling about, preparing to take the President's picture while he was speaking, but Mr. Lincoln finished before the photographer was ready. It is stated that when President Lincoln reached the town of Gettysburg, on his way to attend the exercises at the cemetery, he inquired for old John Burns, the hero of the Battle of Gettysburg, who left his farm and fought with the Union soldiers upon that bloody field. The veteran was sent for, and on his arrival the President showed him marked attention, taking him by the arm and walking with him in the procession through the streets to the cemetery. Edward Everett, who was associated with Lincoln during these two or three days, says of the impression the President made on him, I recognized in the President a full measure of the qualities which entitle him to the personal respect of the people. On the only social occasion on which I ever had the honor to be in his company, viz. the commemoration at Gettysburg, he sat at the table of my friend David Willis, by the side of several distinguished persons, foreigners and Americans and in gentlemanly appearance, manners, and conversation, he was the peer of any man at the table. End of chapter 25b. Recording by Bill Borst.